0: God's holy word. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can read and study it this morning for these 30, 35 minutes together. Thank you that we can celebrate the Lord's table today to remember the sacrifice that you've made. Thank you for Jesus Christ who willingly gave his life for us. Thank you for constantly working in our lives as you've worked in the lives and hearts of people throughout all time. As we study this passage about Hannah today, would you give us wisdom to glean truths that would help us to walk more closely with you and to regard you as kind and good? Thank you for all who've come today with whatever troubles and burdens they have. We joyfully have sung before you, and we'll do that again in a minute, We've given our gifts unto you happily and now we want to receive your word. So forgive us of our sins and open our ears to hear what you have to say. We do thank you, Lord, for our nation. On this day, we're grateful for freedom. Freedom to gather and speak and sing and all kinds of freedoms. And our nation is flawed and we pray that you would work in the lives of our leadership, both in our state and in our country. It seems almost impossible that the sinful tide could be stemmed, but we pray that you might use not just people in government, but people who call themselves believers to stand up for what is right and to honor you. We thank you, God, for the joy of meeting together today. Pray for Mom as she teaches the little ones, a good group of children downstairs. We pray that their hearts might receive the word too. And that you would be honored by all that is said and done today. Please, we pray that you'd be pleased with what we offer you. And now, make me invisible in a sense during this message that we all might hear from you and understand that this is your word. For this moment in our lives, we pray these things in your precious holy name. Amen. Richard Phillips says this, Forgetting the Lord is the greatest evil that will befall any nation. <laughs> Forgetting the Lord is the greatest evil that can befall any nation. Isn't it ironic? In our study today in 1 Samuel when many are gathering to celebrate our country in various ways, fireworks, barbecues, sparklers, and all the rest, all that stuff's fun and good, God has been pushed away. We now live in a nation where Christian principles haven't just been abandoned, they are actually attacked. And those of us who hold to standards of righteousness find ourselves more and more on the outside what is true in our day and our nation also marked the period of the time that we're looking at in the scripture today. In fact, last week we just spent most of our time looking at the last verse of Judges chapter 25 or rather verse 21 chapter 21 verse 25 where it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone has their own standard of what is right and wrong. And that's their truth and their they're right and no one can say anything against that what is right for you may not be right for someone else it's a policy and a and a and a mindset that has creeped also into the church we just kind of do our own thing and and no longer is god's word held as the high standard that it is this attitude began shortly after the death of joshua remember joshua was the the uh successor to moses who led the people through the wilderness a little Israelite history here. And when he was dying, he said, Choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And for a time, that was what they did. But then there's this sad statement. As soon as that generation died, Judges 2, verse 10 to 12, says this. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. Or the work that he had done for Israel. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers. And they went after other gods and bowed down to them. One generation after Joshua's generation, those people all died out and their children totally abandoned the Lord. And all of Judges records the moral and spiritual and political chaos that was a result of that understand this truth very clearly right away forgetting the lord inevitably leads to forsaking the lord if you do not make god and your relationship with christ the priority of your life it will eventually lead to you prioritizing something else And your forgetting the Lord will lead to a more active forsaking of the Lord. When you train your children that something else is more important than Christ, something else will rush into that void. It will not remain a vacuum. When you do not honor Christ in your life, in your home, at your job, in our church... It will not just remain static or neutral. Their affection, especially as you raise children and teens, their affections will not naturally return to the Lord. Instead, something else will rush into that void that you as parents create, and they will do exactly what the Israelites did. Abandon the God of their fathers, and bow down and worship and serve other gods, whatever those might be. I mean, our nation has already done that. Our nation has already done that. In fact, John MacArthur said the hope for America is gone because of our giving in to this wickedness and sinful practices. But Christians are doing this too. They forget the Lord, right? Do not honor Him in their homes or especially on His day. Other things all fill that void. And then we wonder. We just, like, it, it, always, it always baffles me how people are so surprised that when we forget God, we have trouble. It's like, this is, this is the natural outcome of a life that abandons God. So when a nation or a family or a church forgets God, a crisis inevitably develops. Trouble comes. And then that church or nation or that family seeks solution for that crisis that has arisen. Following this so far? So we forget God. Let's use the family as an example. We forget God. We don't honor him in our homes. We just, other things take the priority of that. We call ourselves Christians, but we hardly know that. Something else rushes in. And so now, oh, we have we have trouble. And we scratch our heads like, I wonder why this trouble is happening. So now we got to find a solution to this major crisis. And since we've forgotten the Lord, we're not seeking the Lord for the solution to the crisis. And the problem multiplies. We look for... We have, a, we have a spiritual and moral crisis and we look to the world for a solution. That just multiplies the problem. Churches do this. Nations do this. Families do this. Judges records Israel's crisis as a result of their abandoning God. The years, hundreds of years of this cycle of rebellion, then God's retribution and their repentance. In these dark, dark moments, especially As we looked at last week, and you can flip right back to there at the end of Judges chapter 21. It's four pages back in my Bible. You just got to skip over Ruth. And in verse 20, chapter 21, verse 25. Everybody should be looking at their Bibles. I love them. Look at your Bibles. In verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a dark, dark time. But in that moment, God is moving, God is working. God's answer to this crisis in the time of Israel's history comes from a very unexpected place. His answer to the crisis comes from a barren woman who could not get pregnant. And that's where 1 Samuel begins. So we're going to start 1 Samuel, our study. Now, First and 2 Samuel have a total of 55 chapters. So we, this is not something we are going to... I, I, I want to be very careful to keep our pace going quickly so we can get through these books together and study what... God has for us. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 verse 11 says all the things that were written in the Old Testament were written for our learning. In other words, these stories are more than just things that our children will enjoy learning in the basement. They're things that have truths and principles for us to glean and ultimately we got to do what Spurgeon says is find a road to Christ in every passage. So as we study through First and 2 Samuel, we're not just looking for things like, hey, you want to defeat the giants in your life like David killed Goliath. That's, that's nonsense preaching, and I'm not going to say things like that. We're going to look at the lives of these real people and how God worked and glean principles from that, but ultimately point ourselves to Christ. So, just like I explained, a nation, a family, a church abandons God, crisis developed, and in this particular case, in the moral and spiritual chaos of this period, a leadership void had developed God would raise up these judges. Deborah, Barak. That's not how my name is pronounced, but there was a Barak in the Old Testament. Uh, Gideon, Samson, and finally the last judge, Samuel, is going to be raised up here. But when there is no leadership, what do people typically do? Here's what one author says. And I I think this applies pretty good to our nation. If there is nobody other than than human beings who care about the race. Let's say it just stopped there. If it was only human beings that cared about the race and there was no God, let's just hypothetical for a minute. Of course, we don't believe that, but let's put ourselves in the minds of the culture who thinks that the, if some's going to help the human race, it's going to be humans that are going to do that. Okay, so we believe that. Let's say we do. What do human beings do then? If it's only human beings that can help the race, who are we going to look for? We're going to look for the wisest and best and most brilliant among us, to lead us through that crisis. The problem is, we will all have our different opinions about that, just like we're going to see in 1 Samuel. But if there is a God who cares about the human race too, and there is, 100%, wouldn't it be foolish for us to look for humans to solve the problem? Rather than count on God to solve the problem. Does anyone follow what I'm saying? am making nonsensical statements, but... If we just believed humans cared about the race then let's find the smartest and best. Derek, lead us. Right? Pick your president on November. We want this guy to take care of the problem. But if we believe God cares, then let us turn to him for the solution. But The problem is, he gives the solution in these very unexpected places that people don't like to accept. Often when we find ourselves in crisis, whether it's church, family, whatever, we, say, we seek out every solution except the Lord. We must ask ourselves if we truly believe that he has the solution. Let's, get, let's begin the story because we've got to get to the Lord's Supper. Let's begin the story. The story starts like all good stories starts. There's a certain guy living in a certain place and his name is this. That's how the passage begins in 1 Samuel. Certain man of Ramathim Zophim. You're looking at your Bibles? 1-1. One, one. Certain man. It's kind of an unimpressive start to the story. Of the hill country of Ephraim, his name was Elkanah. The places and people mentioned here, all the ancestors, it goes back four generations. Jehoram, or Jeroham, sorry, Elihu, Tohu, Zuf. Don't have a lot of those kids running around church nurseries today. Those names aren't real popular. All of these people and these places are significant because they are insignificant. Elkanah's a nobody. Elkanah's just a normal Nobody. He's not a powerful man. He's not a well-known man. He's not a, some people might say he is a wealthy man. We, We just don't know. There's nothing about this person that stands out. He's obscure and insignificant. The places are insignificant. People even question where these places really are. So there's nothing powerful about this, you know. In the middle of the crisis, we're expecting God to say, "And I'm going to bring the wealthiest, most powerful person to leadership, and he's going to take care of the problem." Instead, he picks out this guy living in the backwoods, basically hill country, and from him and his barren wife, God is going to bring out the man who's going to be his spokesman and his representative. I mean, I guess the most uh, provocative thing we know about Elkanah is that he's got two wives. I don't want to get bogged down with this issue of polygamy, but we've got to talk about it here for a second. He's got two wives. This is not God's intention. Alistair Begg said about this, that God tolerated this, but never commended it. We understand even from the words of Christ in the New Testament that God's plan was from the beginning, He made them one man and one woman. And that is the arrangement that brings about God's blessing. So why this practice in the ancient culture. <laughs> I mean, even though it was tolerated, it ultimately and almost always brought about terrible consequences, as you can imagine. I, I, I read some funny things regarding this, and this one kind of made me laugh, regarding uh, the idea of polygamy, which of course is not God's intention. The complications and unsavory results are everywhere apparent. Unsavory results of polygamy. Now, Akana would do this, or the, the culture would do this, primarily because of the importance of having an heir to your namesake. So the way the passage is written for us, and you're looking here, the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, and that word can also mean the name of the second wife, was Penina. So he married Hannah first, the idea being Elkanah loved Hannah. Hannah, sadly, was unable to have children. She's barren. We're going to talk about that some more in a second. So because of the need to carry on Elkanah's line and have an heir and the importance of that in the culture, he married this other woman, Penina. And it's very similar to Sarah. Remember Sarah and her old age and Abraham? And she's unable to have a child. And she encourages, and this is like, kind of like mind-blowing Go ahead and take Hagar and have a child with her. Things we just wouldn't think about. Hannah, as the barren wife, was unable to have children. And Penina, as, again, this this made me laugh, a commentator says, she's overly fertile. Look down to verse number four. She has, according to the passage, sons, plural, and daughters, plural. So she has lots of children. Hannah has none. But God, through the writing of the scripture, brings our attention to poor, barren Hannah. Some of you maybe have found yourselves in this very position. Unable to have children. Our theology tells us that God is sovereign. And so, when we're unable to have children, we may feel forsaken by the Lord. But let's put that one issue aside, it may be the case in other aspects of life. We say God is sovereign in all areas, and then some aspect of our life He doesn't seem to be coming through for us. Maybe it is children. Maybe it is marriage. Maybe it is some dream or situation that you've desired. Um, it could be any anything. And we, we ask ourselves if God really cares Or has he forgotten us? In fact, Hannah even uses that phrase later in the passage when she prays in verse number 11, vowing to God, Lord of hosts, if you will look on my affliction of your servant and remember me and do not forget your servant. She's expressing how she feels. In a sense, she feels forgotten. And I'm asking you, do you? Has God in some way, quote, let you down? Hasn't brought you the spouse you want? Hasn't fulfilled this dream? Or has has not answered this prayer and you feel forgotten, overlooked, neglected. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 27 even asks that question. Israel Israel asks God in prayer, why is my way passed over by God? Why is my situation being ignored by God? Ever felt that way? If, if, you, if you don't say yes, you're, you're lying. Because all of us have felt in some sense, God, why are you not looking on my problem? Why are you not answering my prayer? I want you to be encouraged to trust your loving Father in whatever situation you're doubting about. And I point you to this scripture. Isaiah 49, 14, and 15. Listen. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Burst into songs, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Now that's the truth that we say we believe. God loves us and cares for us. We are loved with an everlasting love and God will have compassion on those who are afflicted. But Zion said, or maybe you say, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And here's God's response. Will a mother forget her nursing child? Is there any way that Tammy and Duncan, or Tam, yeah, Tammy and Duncan are gonna walk out of here today and forget to take Lincoln with them? I've done that before with our children, but uh, and, and that's a good point. It's a good point to what scripture says. Can a mother forget her nursing child? We look in society and sometimes that does happen. Sometimes we do, do see mothers who neglect their children. Isn't that right? But, but God is using this example to say, in, in most overwhelmingly amount of situations, no, that will not happen. Because he even says, even if she may forget, even if that might happen, I will not forget you. And then he goes on to say, see, I have written your name on the palms of my hands. He hasn't really done that because he doesn't have a hand, but what he's telling you is he has not forgotten. He has not forsaken. You may feel that way today, but forget your feelings and rest on the truth of God's word. This doesn't mean like Hannah, you'll have the baby you want, or you'll marry the man or woman that you're looking for, or you'll have this dream fulfilled. That doesn't mean that, but you can trust him even when those Situations do not turn about the way that you want them to. Everyone understand that. Now, Hannah, of course, had pain. This would be a very tough situation for her to endure, but it was made all the worse. <laughs> her personal grief made all the worse by the provoking that she experienced from this other uh, woman, Penina. I was gonna, I was gonna make up my own uh, imaginary conversation, but a guy did it, and it's. This, this is what you... So these guys are going up to worship all the time and it says, where does it say it here? Verse number six. Hannah's rival, see it there? Hannah's rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And meanwhile, Penina has sons, plural, daughters, plural, Hannah has none. So this guy, Dale Davis, he wrote a book on 1 Samuel. Here's what he says. We can imagine how this might have gone. <laughs> Here's Penina. Now, do all of your children have your food? Dear me, there are so many of you, it's hard to keep track. One of her children. Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. What did you say, honey? I said Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Miss Hannah? Oh, yes, that's right. She doesn't have any children. Doesn't she want children? Oh, yeah, she wants children very much. Don't you want children, Hannah? Hannah? Doesn't daddy want Miss Hannah to have children? Oh, sure, but Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him because she can't have any kids. Why not? Because God won't let her. Does God not love Miss Hannah? I don't know. What do you think? Oh, Hannah, did I mention I'm pregnant again? Do you think you'll ever be pregnant? I mean, this is, that's exactly what you can imagine. Here's what scripture says. She provoked her. This guy imagines what it's like. Could you imagine the pain Hannah might feel? All these little ones. Kids say things. But but Penina's doing it probably because she knows Elkanah really loves Hannah. And the scripture even says that in the giving of their sacrifices when the food was portioned out. It says that she, he gave to Hannah a double portion. The word really means two noses of sheep. He gave the best the best cuts of meat to Hannah because he loved Hannah. Penina knew that, even though she was the overly fertile one. So what's she going to do? She's going to stick that knife into Hannah any chance she get. So not only does the personal grief of her lost dreams of having children cause her pain, but she's got to take this from the other one who keeps churning these babies out. Terrible. Hannah's name actually means Favored one. Maybe you guys probably knew that. Graced one. I thought it was cute, Hannah, when I told Sunday, last Sunday night, I said we we're going to talk about Hannah this week. She got excited about that. Hannah, Hannah, Hannah's name means favored one. Do you think she felt very favored? She even expresses, as I pointed out, that she felt forgotten. Hannah's barrenness and her inability to have children is reflective of Israel's barrenness as a nation. Deuteronomy seven verse fourteen says this: "You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless." It's discussing the, the commitments of the covenant that God is making with the nation. If you go to the nation and you do these things and you live obediently, the promise is that none of your children, none of your people, will be childless. Where here, Hannah is barren. Which is reflective that Israel isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing. Israel had forfeited the blessing of God through their disobedience. And this barren woman is symbol, a symbol of faithless and fruitless Israel. Israel was producing faithless children. Generations of people that had forgotten the Lord. But in the middle of that, you know who stands out? So you got this whole nation producing faithless, fruitless Children not living up to the commitments of the covenant, and in that dark and miserable time, who stands out? Who stands out? Who stands out? Elkanah does, and Hannah. Elkanah, this godly man, what's he doing in the passage? What's he doing in the passage? Somebody answer the question. What's he doing here in chapter one? Where's he going? He's going to the tabernacle at Shiloh to worship and to fulfill the feasts and to obey God and to, and to recognize. Elkanah is recognizing in whatever limited understanding of grace that he has, he recognizes that in that tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant, and on the Ark of the Covenant is that mercy seat where the blood of the Lamb is sprinkled for the forgiveness of sin. So here's what Elkanah understood. Even in this dark and miserable time where most of the nation has forgotten and abandoned God, Elkanah is going to worship and saying, I need that bloody sacrifice for me. That's what he's doing in the celebration. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you recognized that the pattern of God's forgiveness demands provision of a substitute blood sacrifice. You don't have to come to the temple today and bring your pet sheep or goat or bull and I don't have to wear a bloody apron and slit that animal's throat and sprinkle it onto some table because our Lord Jesus Christ has shed his blood on the cross of Calvary once and for all so that anybody who seeks that mercy in Christ finds free forgiveness. And so in the society and world and culture that says we don't want God, we are a group of people, I hope, that says we need the sacrifice of Christ to be right with God. I hope you believe that. That's the starting point of the solution. Of all the crises that we face, our sin crisis is the first and foremost that must be solved. All these other crises don't matter in the grand scope of things. This one does. To be right with Him, you must acknowledge your sinfulness and your brokenness and abandon any hope or achievements that you have. Stop saying you're a good person. Start acknowledging who you really are in your heart. Say, I am broken. I am needy. I am sinful. I am unworthy and undeserving of your mercy. But I beg for it on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. That's what Elkanah is doing here. He's looking ahead, of course, to the sacrifice of Christ, but he's following the pattern. He's being obedient to the commands. And this unknown nobody is who God is going to work through and bring His servant Samuel. I don't know if you've sought forgiveness through Christ alone or not. I don't know if you're confused or or kind of foggy about what it truly means to be saved. But the urgent, urgent need of your life today is to trust in the shed blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, to take away your sins. Now when that commitment is made to Christ, it certainly demands and necessitates a changed life. We have so many weak and inconsistent believers. I mean, we talk about the different expectations that God has for us to bear fruit, to share the Gospel. It's hard to get believers to do even the most basic of commitments these days. God's solution to the moral, spiritual chaos that is happening in the time of the judges was to use an unknown, obscure, but godly man and woman, Elkanah and his wife Hannah, to bring about this child Samuel. And that man, Samuel, would rise above the cesspool of ungodliness in that culture and point people to truth. Samuel's going to be used in the first seven chapters He's actually going to anoint the first two kings of Israel. he is going to turn the people to God, rebuking their sin. You know what we tend to look for and look at when there's big crises or problems or chaos? We want to look to something big and popular and well-known to solve the problem. Uh, and it is God who uses the insignificant and small things of this world to confound those who think they're wise. I wonder if even, and, and we all would admit our culture and society is, going, is, is abandoning God and churches are following that. Could it be from this small, insignificant point on the planet where 45 people are gathered today that God might raise up from this obscure, unknown place some boy, some girl that would call out the ungodliness in our society and point people to God. Maybe, maybe a Newton or a Spurgeon or a Lloyd-Jones would rise up from this church and God would use... Wouldn't that be wonderful? Just like He did for Elkanah and Hannah. God's answer to this crisis came from an unexpected source, this barren woman. And God, God repeats Himself in this way. Do you notice that? God God does this a lot. When when there's a crisis or some problem that's going on, God God often uses a barren woman to bring about a deliverer. This happens a lot. Barren Sarah gives birth to Isaac, the promised child. To carry on the fulfillment of the promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that from you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he's going to carry on that chosen race. Baron Rachel gives birth to Joseph, who at a time of crisis in the nation of Israel, during a famine, Joseph is brought to a position of power in Egypt where he basically, even though he was hated by his brothers and sold into slavery, saves the race and delivers the people. The barren wife of Manoah gives birth to Samson, who even though he never lived up to God's promise for him because of his disobedience, still was used by God as a powerful deliverer of his people. Here we have barren Hannah giving birth to Samuel who during a time of chaos and crisis rises to a position of power and leadership. We look for God's solution to the crisis in the wrong places when God is working in unexpected, hard-to-believe ways. Now, if you are thinking with me, and few of you are, do you know where I'm going with this? Baron Elizabeth gives birth to John the Baptist who points to people one day by the Jordan River. Look! Look! It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's not barren Mary, but it's childless Mary who is blessed and favored by God. You will be highly favored, the angel says to her, who brings forth Jesus. And they call him that. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. An obscure, out-of-the-way place called Nazareth, when the disciples even say, is anything good ever going to come from Nazareth? Come and see. And God brings about the solution to the crisis of our sins from an out-of-the-way source. When everything is hopeless and helpless, we just need to turn our eyes to God who has the solution to every challenge. I love the way this person puts it and we'll move into the lord's supper. When God's people are without strength, without resources, without hope and without gimmicks, that is when God loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. When everything is lost and hopeless, that is when God loves to step in and work, and that's precisely what he did. This and that's what Romans 5 says, in due time when we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And the solution to the greatest crisis that we have is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads to pray, prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.